0: Great. So good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm Peter Bergman um, and welcome to this uh, to the third. Well, in, in effect, really, in reality, the second uh, seminar for the reconsidering Zionist uh, early Jewish sorry, um, nationalist ideology seminar, which we possibly should have renamed the victory of human perseverance in the face of technological adversity seminar. But anyway, here we are. Um, we've, we've, it's really my pleasure today to introduce our speaker, uh, Maya Gilden-Zuckerman who is the postdoctoral fellow at the Department of Management, Politics and Philosophy at Copenhagen Business School. Maya was the Jim Joseph postdoctoral fellow at education and Jewish studies at Stanford University. Uh, Her research centers around questions related to modern and contemporary Jewish citizenship, the civil sphere and national inner exclusion relations. She's co-edited the book called New Perspectives on Jewish Cultural History, Boundaries, Experiences and Sense Making* that was published by Routledge in 2019. She holds a PhD from the University of Southern Denmark in Middle Eastern Studies, an MA in Sociology and Anthropology from Tel Aviv University. Maya, um, over to you. Thank you very, very much for speaking for us today.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for spending the afternoon here. Um, Though I would have loved to be in Oxford right now, I will stay here in Copenhagen. So it uh, seems like almost a surreal pleasure and honor to be granted 45 minutes to actual practice what I generally just have time to preach. As I've been arguing for some years now, I contend that early Zionism should be studied and understood as a range of manifold ongoing processes, rather than discrete events or entities. However, the thing about manifold processes is that it takes some time to unfold and outline them in front of our audience. Moreover, it's often an incomplete task as processes are infinite in both time and space. So nevertheless, I'll use my time today to give you an extended example of how Zionist emergence can be seen as a fragmented, ongoing fluid process that was always negotiated through practices and meaning making. To state my purpose as concisely as possible, I want in this lecture to show Zionist emergence as a cultural process of meaning making. So let me now flesh out what I mean with these terms, one by one, so that it becomes clear what added value this perspective can have for the study of early Jewish nationalism. Um, After this brief uh, conceptual mapping, and I promise it will be brief, I will move on to the fun part of bringing us all back to the spring of 1897, where we'll travel with a group of Jews to Palestine in order to understand what Herzl, Palestine and Jewish national collectivity could mean for Western-identified Jews at the end of the century. So I want to briefly address three concepts um, that are important for this lecture. I tie these concepts to the general framework of cultural and pragmatic sociology, following the lead, among others, of um, Yale professor uh, Jeffrey Alexander. So the three concepts are process, meaning-making, and cultural structure. And if you could um, go to the next slide, thank you. The emphasis on seeing Zionist emergence as process is based on the conviction that we need to pay more attention to the ongoing, unstable ways in which a movement as Zionism became, rather than seeing it as a defined entity that was already settled. So to, to quote Schulz, um, to engage with the world by seeing, sorry, I quote, to engage with the world by seeing process as fundamental does not imply to deny the existence of states, events, entity or other things. It does, however, draw attention to the ways in which any object can be unpacked to reveal the complex processes involved in the object's constitution, end of quote. So thus, rather than seeing Zionism as an idea or a person or a pamphlet, that is as an entity that moved around without being moved itself, an unmoved mover, if you want. The process perspective attempts to trace the many activities and transactions that continuously had to be in place for Zionism to become a force that could create, coordinate and transform Jewish lives around the world. So the second concept is meaning making. So the canon of Jewish nationalist historiography outlines the central text and pantheon through which we are taught to understand Jewish nationalist emergence. So this canon most famously assembled in Arthur Hertzberg, The Zionist Idea, it displays how, how thinkers and politicians articulated and fought for different versions of Jewish nationhood. Hertzberg and other uh, historians then provide the context to show us how these ideas and strategies either failed or succeeded um, as they were played out. However, a very big gap still exists in which we see and learn through ethnographic descriptions how Jews came to make sense of Zionism. What were really the processes through which Zionism was seen as relevant, meaningful, present, important are the opposite in ordinary Jews' lives. So what I'm asking is both a call for bottom-up history, but it's also a wish to see meaning and meaning-making as crucial historical players in how change and process come about. And the final concept is cultural structure. I find this particularly important in the context of Zionist historiography, as the concept of culture here carries its own rather confused meaning and trajectory. So in a semiotic anthropological sense, culture is paraphrasing Gertz, webs of significance that people are suspended in in yet have spun themselves. So Geoffrey Alexander has restated the importance through which we should understand how cultural codes of significance and cultural negotiation dominate the social order. We need to see culture structures as the normative, meaning-making, historically embedded, yet future-oriented navigation code that are all in different ways and times informed by and reacting to. Uh, so Jewish historical culture studies have the last decade shown us how different national, social, racial and cultural code- codes would need negotiated by Jewish citizens. However, these approaches have not been fully used or explored within the study of Jewish politics, I contend at least. So in this field, we still seem to believe that culture and meaning making belong in another disciplinary sub-department. But nothing I hope to show you today could be further from the truth. The webs of significance that the early Zionist explorers were spun in and continue to spin should not be seen as apolitical, because they were central meanings through which these people read and acted in the world, and in turn were read and interacted with. So enough um, conceptual outlining for now. Let's jump into the thrust of the matter. For the rest of the lecture, I want to unfold an example of how we can understand early Jewish national emergence as process that centers on meaning-making and cultural coding. So let me bring you back to the renowned year of 1897. It's not yet August. The first Zionist Congress is not even the horizon for the 29 year old Danish Jewish physician, uh, Louis Hermann Frenkel. Uh, next slide. He's living in Copenhagen. And here, unfortunately, I don't have a picture of him as a 29 year old. Oh, you will see some in a moment, but here's the more standard pictures of him, of him. So he's living in Copenhagen at the time, where he was born, raised, and educated. Louis Frankel is in many, way, in, in many ways a product of his time. His father, Nathan Frankel, was a textile and silk merchant who inherited the business from his father before him. During the second half of the 19th century, Nathan succeeded in developing his father's more humble business into a thriving textile enterprise that served the Danish upper middle class. So when Frenkel was born in 1868, Nathan's business was going well. The family that eventually would count three kids had moved into a bourgeois apartment in the center of Copenhagen. So, Um, Back in 1814, Denmark allowed Jews to enter guilds and gave them more rights as citizens, which was confirmed and expanded with the Constitution of 1849, um, which among other things stressed freedom of religion. After Denmark lost the war to Germany in 1864, Nathan Frankel continued to do business in Germany and visit the family in the region, but he also made sure that his sons received a good Danish education and understood the importance of dedicated national allegiance. Um, Frankel went on to study medicine at Copenhagen University, but he did also volunteer to the Danish army, and he developed the National Ambulance Service to rule part of the country, the first in the country. So, the Frankel family was just like many other Danish-Jewish urban families at the end of the 19th century. They were working hard at securing and reaffirming themselves as assertively Danish, as in-group members of the Danish society. Um, however, as one of the few in the younger post-1864 generation, Frankl also insisted on educating, educating and engaging himself in Orthodox Judaism. As a physician, he helped articulate and reform the procedure of circumcision so that it aligned with the medical discourse at, of the time. And he took private classes with the Chief Rabbi David Simonson whenever he had a break from the hospital. So, Frankel was interested in discussing Talmudic questions, thinking about interpretation of rituals relating to historical Jewish events as bridges and signposts for the present day. Um, while these theological questions interested Frankel, um, they did not push him to reorganize um, or challenge accepted social values or social relations in the community. So, prior to 1897, he could make perfect sense of his Jewishness within the established community norms and practices of his time. Okay, so 1897 rolls around and Frankl has just passed his uh, final medical exam and is now planning to open his own clinic in Copenhagen. He's not yet married and is thus feeling rather free to explore the world before settling down. An invitation arrives uh, from London to travel to Palestine with the Maccabean pilgrimage, which ignites something in him. We have a document, we're so lucky to have a document, uh, that testifies as to how Franklin interprets this invitation, because he communicates its content to Rabbi Simonson as he tries to convince the rabbi to come along. So the letter, which was written uh, March 8, 1897, and here we can go to the next slide. Um, so I will quote uh, part of the, this uh, letter that we see written in the right. Um, and it's also written part of the letter on the back side. We have on the picture is uh, Rabbi Simonson and his wife. Um, and this is from his uh, house, uh, his apartment. Um, okay, I will go. Highly esteemed Mr. Chief Rabbi. Can I tempt you? So the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. Don't you feel like doing just that? On April 6th, a splendid opportunity offers itself. It goes from London via Dover, Calais, Paris to Marseille on April 8 from here to Alexandria and tracks from there to Cairo and Ismailia and with the ship, which we again will encounter in Port Said to Yafro. The colonies will be visited and then you'll go with train to Jerusalem, Hotel Jerusalem to stay here until Monday morning. From here, you will ride on horse from Jerusalem to Damascus, which will be between 30 to 40 miles. The trip will pass first Bethel, Shiloh, Shechem, Israel, Mount Tabor to the Lake of Tiberias, where we'll rest the last two days of Pesach. Sunday, 25th, we'll continue the ride to Damascus and from there to Beirut, from where the ship takes the group to Smyrna, Piraeus, and back to Marseille. So, then Frankel quotes directly in English from the itinerary, and you you don't have that here. So he he quotes in English here. The, the, what I've read so far was in Danish with my translation to English. Kosher food will be provided throughout on board the steamer, at the hotels, and on camping tour in Palestine. And a Jewish cook or shochel will accompany the party. And, Frankel continues, and with added to this, and he goes back to English, washing is done at the hotels, but not in camp. Uh, I would say that it all looks very tempting, and the list has probably not ended. The purpose of the tour is to arouse. Interest among the Jews for Palestine, and it is hoped that the tour will be basis for literary works. So end of quote. Without wrapping up the suggestion further, Frankel in the letter immediately moved on to mention the edit he had been doing on the recent proposal to reform uh, the procedure of circumcision. Uh, and he asked the rabbi to confer more on this matter when Frankel returned home from the medical visit at the Royal Frauen Clinic in Dresden, where he's currently at. He ended the letter noting that there wasn't much to say about Dresden. He writes, I quote, The Jews are living an odd secluded life here, and there is not much life in the other residents, except when they burn off their churches, end of quote. So, as we just heard, Frankel framed the trip to Palestine with this biblical quote from Exodus, and thus from the outset in Cast Endeavor with purpose and meaning related to the theological ambiguous meaning of Israel that is, as a promised land and a group of people. The trip in this context thus speaks to some of the core values of Judaism, namely the idea of a nexus in which the chosen people and promised land come together to form a sacred unity. That it is disputable whether this nexus should be carried out in the specific and mundane forms that the rest of the letter suggests is initially a subordinate point. So in fact, Feinkel suggests in the letter that it was the many exciting stops and the comfortable amenities of the travel that would bring the the children of Israel onwards. The letter seemed to express an excitement of the synergy between these elements, which made it all look very tempting. Palestine, the grand tour and luxury amenities. Only at this point in the letter did Frankel mention a supposedly larger purpose behind the tour, to evoke interest for Palestine among Jews and inspire literary works based on the journey. So while Frankel noted that these were the purposes, he did not add, add excitement or expand further on the on these purposes. Instead, they appeared rather isolated from the rest of the described synergy and newness. So the purposes were mentioned there, but not part of what Frankel, what got Frankel excited about going, and presumably also what not what he thought would get Rabbi Simonson going. So, moreover, Frankel grounded the letter in mundane and immediate matters, namely discussions surrounding the question of reforming or editing the legislation related to circumcision. And finally, there was the observation of the withdrawn Jewish life of Dresden that, that left Frankel unimpressed and somewhat disdainful about the local Jewish community. So, why does this matter? How can this letter be seen as a first cue in the tracing of the cultural process of Zionist meaning-making? So, first and foremost, the letters offer us a quite unique and thick description of the situated circumstances in which the suggestion to travel on a Jewish tour to Palestine in 1897 inserted itself. The letter juxtaposed different issues that though not related in immediate content all relate to certain cultural coding of collective Jewish life in early 1897. So starting backwards, there was the physical presence of where Frankel was currently situated, the city of Dresden. When Frankel chose to convey to Simonsen, what he chose to convey to Simonsen about this city was that the Jews were not asserting themselves in the public life. He did not speculate in the reason for why this withdrawal, but just noted that their choice of life seemed odd ought not to be Jews living their life in the public sphere. Secondly, he mentioned the ongoing word of work about editing the circ- circumcision recommendation. This was important work, work for Franco, as he apologized to Simonson for the many edits he had offered and his wish to continue to work further on it. For Frenkel, who stood in the beginning of his medical career and who was extremely curious about the latest medical development, he was also deeply invested in getting circumcision to be accepted and fit into modern medical discourse and government regulations. And there was no dichotomies or hesitation mentioned here. These thoughts and practices belong in the same realm of present-day urban Jewish life. Then comes the very uh, spectacular reason for the letter, the opportunity to travel to Palestine as part of a group of European Jews. So this journey belonged in the same realm um, of circumcision and disdain of Dresden Jews, in the intersection between practicing modern European life and exploring and valorizing specific Jewish paths and meanings within it. So what we learned from the letter is that Frankl was a man who in early 1897 was aware and engaged in some of the challenges in European Jewish life and a man interested in experiencing the excitement of a Europe that was opening up for Jews. From his perspective, Palestine seemed like a th- thrilling destination, both through a religious lens and an explorative tourist lens, which for him at the time was not mutually exclusive. To make a long story short at this point, Frankel joined the tour a month later in London, while Chief Rabbi Simonson stayed back home. Now, um, let's unravel some of the circumstances of the Maccabean pilgrimage and how it became the supposedly first Zionist tour to Palestine. And we can change slightly. Like here. Um, the Maccabean pilgrimage has been mentioned in several Zionist historiographies. Latest, perhaps most well known in Shavit's Promised Land, um, as it was his great grandfather, Herbert Bendrich, who helped organize it and was its tour leader. For Shavit, the trip, took place from, uh, the, the, tri- the trip which took place from April to May 1897 was a manifestation of the Jewish nation state dream that was at the core of Herzlian Zionism. It was a living attempt to connect the ideas of Herzl with the territory of Palestine and thus lay the groundwork for the state in the making. This was the perspective in, um, that uh, Ari Shavit presents in his book. However, and there is a very big however, um, this was not the purpose of the tour at the time. Um, and this was not what was really taking place during the tour. So Shavit does not unfold the complex meaning making that was taking place at the time, and he does misses out on a fantastic opportunity to see what and how this first group of Jews who set out to assess Herzl's idea vis-a-vis the reality of Palestine, how they really engage themselves in this project. So Shevit overlooks the web of meanings that they try to make sense of and navigate in. And this becomes clear already when we look um, at the public discussion between Herzl and Bendwich about the very purpose and framing of the tour. So just a brief background into how the pilgrimage came about in the first place. So in their Judenstadt, which Herzl had published a year earlier, Hattel explicitly stated that he believed that a group of Western Jews should be in charge of materializing what he termed the Zionist idea. He called this body the Society of the Jews and hoped the Anglo-Jewish intellectuals would comprise the bulk of this society. He had therefore presented his ideas for the Maccabean Club, a forum he identified as fitting the bill. The Maccabean Club was created in 1891 and whose official aim was to form Here I quote, social intercourse and cooperation among its members with a view to the promotion of the interest of the Jewish race. So indeed, it was a club that aimed at creating an intellectual Jewish milieu without expressing or affiliating with any political, religious, or economic parties or interests. Its interest in Palestine was explicitly intellectual. It had invited Herzl into its club in the summer of 1896 as a Jew of Letters not politics, as it was mentioned in its program. So doing his talk in the club, Herzl spoke passionately about the need for British Jews to engage in the future of European Jewry and the need for creating a Jewish homeland in Palestine. The Maccabeans hesitantly decided to establish a commission to inquire into Herzl's plan and subsequently um, to, to send an expedition to Palestine to explore its potential. However, these were kind of empty or lofty meeting decisions that basically postponed any action to an undefined future. It was to be, but no one really put it into practice how it was to be. Um, most of the Maccabeans wanted to silence Hertel, but, uh, but not generate any further action. However, community activist, lawyer and Maccabean member Herbert Bendridge Uh, wanted it differently and was, in fact, very keen on exploring the validity of Herzl's ideas. So, Bendwitz had been a founding member of the London Tent of Hovey Zion and was an Orthodox Jew with a big heart and interest in strengthening both um, local and international Jewish communities. So, together with the travel company Thomas Cook, he single-handedly managed to organize what became known as the Maccabean Pilgrimage to Palestine. He gradually began to see that the Maccabean members were neither going to help organize the tour, nor going to participate. They made it clear to Bendwich that a Jewish expedition to Palestine was not who they were um, or wanted to be. Bendwich soon began adjusting the Palestine tour accordingly. He named it a pilgrimage instead of an expedition. He downgraded any political motif and finally invited Jews from around the world to join him so that the notion of a commission or society of British Jews were replaced with a broader Jewish community. Um, So in the itinerary, it was stated in here. Could we go to the next slide, please? And here I quote. And here's a picture of Benrich. Um, The pilgrimage is going to be one. uh, The pilgrimage is going to be one of more than local or personal concern not that we're going for any specifically religious, much less for any political purpose, nor are we going as prospectors or philanthropists, and yet not as mere curiosity hunters or sightseers. We shall go as Western Jews, evidencing only by our participation in the pilgrimage, the great truth of a feeling of identity and brotherhood between our people, wherever they may be spread and of an interest in our lands, however far we may be removed from it." End of quote. So, Bendwich here distinguished what the purpose, first of all, was not before he came around to define the purpose in more positive terms. He laid out a whole series of dichotomies through which he carved out the tour. And here we can move on to the next. Just um, so we can see in the more affirmative uh, side, the pilgrims were Western Jews. They had a relationship between um, their sense of peoplehood and their interest in their land, and they had a feeling of identity and brotherhood. They were not prospectors, philanthropists, curiosity hunters, sightseers. They did not have any local or personal concern uh, in Palestine, and they did not um, have any religious or political purpose. Uh, religious or political purpose there. So that was uh, the binary list of binaries that were listed. Um, From this description, we can learn quite a lot about the cultural codes that were underpinning the tour leader's understanding of the traveling Jews and their mission. The binaries listed here stress the point that Western Jews stood above all the petty and particular concerns and purposes that non-Western Jews and Western non-Jews might have in their luggage when they travel to Palestine. what seems to be the key sacralizing feature of these Jews were their affiliation with the West as Western Jews, they could have feelings of Jewish identity and brotherhood, which made them interested in the land of Israel without this being of a religious or political nature and without losing any of their Western affiliation. So in other words, traveling as Western Jews uh, would not change their national or civic status, which as native Westerners apparently was unchangeable. The travel would instead simply allow them to strengthen a specific sub-character, which was their Jewish identity. It seemed so paramount to Bendwich to flesh this point out. Jewish travel to Palestine would not change an inch of their core Western values and would obviously not interfere with the national political affiliation. So these were clearly not up for grabs, as the tour began, at least. So before we turn to the travel itself, let's look at how um, Herzl presented this journey. He was very invested in the idea that this travel would be a significant endeavor for the Zionist movement. And here we can move on to the next slide. Under the title, The Return to Palestine, he wrote in the Jewish Chronicle on January uh, 22, 1897. I quote, political Zionism sets to work armored with all the means of the present day. In this sense, the pilgrimage of Mr. Bendwich is of a significance which cannot be underrated. For the first time, a band of modern cultured Jews of all profession with a distinct leading idea make their way to the land of our fathers in order to personally explore it. It is a national inquiry commission, singular of its kind, one calculated to raise our hopes. And um, Herzl emphasis, emphasized that this form of travel was indeed a political act since the group, in Herzl's eyes, constituted a national unity, or entity, sorry. He insisted that the traveling Jews represented a national Jewish collectivity that, while being modern and cultured, as also Bendwich um, states, also had their own distinct political agenda about the Jewish future in Palestine. So to avoid uh, these meanings would simply make the tour an empty uh, gesture, from Herzl's perspective. So Herzl, in other words, insisted on seeing the travel and its purpose as an entity which the Jewish community should see see as part of the Emergent Zionist movement. The organizing itself showed that there was no entity and there was no unified political agenda behind it. In order to actually organize a tour to Palestine in early 1897, Bentwich had to adapt and adjust the tour and the tour outline in a a way that resonated with enough Jews who were willing and ready to set out, and could afford it, uh, to set out to Palestine as a Jewish pilgrimage. He needed to find the Frenkels, in Jewish communities around the world who could identify and project their feelings and understanding of Jewish past, present and future in a way that made signing up and going to Palestine a meaningful and exciting endeavor. So now let's finally zoom in on some of the stops on the journey where we see some of these negotiations of what Jewish nationhood meant for these travelers. So in the anthropological literature on pilgrimage, we generally see studies divided into three parts. We have the the traveling, the the journey, the destination, and the return, right? Um, While Frankel has had his eyes solely focused on Palestine, the 21 participants who ended up going quickly seemed much more invested in the traveling itself. The American Jewish pilgrim Fanny Moore wrote, and here we can go to the next book. So I quote, so that small incongruence party was made up of so many sorts. And yet in the few weeks that we shared all with each other, there was nothing but kindness on the part of one and all the six days on the beautiful blue Mediterranean with with its varied shores of Italy and Sardinia were a most delightful part of our journey. We were all well acquainted by this time, having been together more in those days than years of ordinary life. Frankel, who throughout the whole trip wrote one to two letters home to his mom and wrote diaries, which we have, which I found in the Danish State Archive. So Frankel was even more enthusiastic about being in motion with a group of international Jews. And here we can move on to the next slide. I quote, it is a pleasure to be part of this trip, where everyone, men and women, are such good friends. It would have been impossible to gather 20 people from Denmark on a tour like this Without some of them shirking and eating treife on another table or smoking on Shabbos, one does not have room for homesickness. One is completely at home here, and that in the middle of the sea, where we see no living creature other than ourselves. End of quote. So, as prescribed in the anthropological pilgrimage literature, the traveling itself creates an intense sense of community um, and a temporary erasure of social differences. Communitas is the anthropological concept for this phenomenon. So, But what is interesting in this part of the process of the Jewish pilgrimage is that the space created among the travelers was not in fact a classic uh, Victorturnian uh, case of anti-structure. That is a liminal space liberated from normal structural conditions. As Frankel enthusiastically noted, the space was in fact structured around Jewish time and Jewish meanings. For Frankel, this was marked off a Jewish ritual practice that made it tangibly different than non-Jewish basis. The second remarkable aspect of this tour was that it felt like a Jewish home, though it had no territorial attachment, right? Fanny went as far as to call the time on the boat itself homecoming. So when they come to the boat, when they had been um, on shore and come back to the boat, she said, I'm coming home. So, almost identical to what Herzl later wrote in Alt Neuland, and I wonder whether he, has, he had read uh, Fanny Möhr's writing. So, what he wrote in El Neuland when he described Western travelers coming to Palestine, declaring on board the ship that that was, in fact, Zion itself. Um, these Jews expressed, in other words, a Jewish belonging to each other and the non-territorial community that had taken shape and meaning before the group went ashore in Palestine. This group feeling was not expressed in political terms or vision, but it it was noted as a new experience of Jewish collectivity. It was marked as a different Jewish community sensation than they had hitherto, hitherto engaged in, where social and religious differences were put aside and geographical attachments forgotten. Arriving to Palestine, however, and here we can take the next picture. Arriving to Palestine, however, generated much more conflictual feelings. For Palestine was not a shrine or an organized formalized sacral destination at the end of pilgrimage traditionally entails. The feeling of enta- of elevated Jewish collectivity that was generated along the way quickly began to disintegrate as the participants tried to make sense of the things they experienced in Palestine. And connected these with the past they embodied and the future they imagined. So, just like the travel itself proved to generate a lot of unexpected feelings of Jewish collectivity that were not irrelevant for the larger nationalist um, project, the actual seeing and being in Palestine um, proved paramount to a new layer of feelings among the pilgrims. As we shall see now, these feelings did not, however, align neatly with Hertel's image of a new Jewish homeland. For Fanny Mer, the excitement and joy about the whole pilgrimage so far, that ended almost as soon as they went ashore in Palestine. In her own words, I quote, so ended those quiet, peaceful, happy times, end of quote. So in rather or in complete Orientalist terms, she described the arrival to Yafo as follows. I quote, the arrival on shore where Eastern life in all its degrading aspect met us in reality. The walk through the town amidst great filth happened to be market day. The human beings, animals, vegetables, meat and fruit formed one mass that reviewing it from the balcony of the hotel was entire conglomeration. The street is narrow and as I said, very filthy, end of quote. In this perspective, Palestine was immediately identified as the backward East that represented all the values and social forms that the West, and thus also these Western Jews, had either rejected or progressed away from. For these pilgrims, Palestine could hardly be distinguished from from the landscape. Jewish Palestine could not be distinguished. British Jewish writer Samuel Levi Ben-Susan turned into the most Palestine-critical pilgrim after the visit, Um, which can be read in his description of Jerusalem, which was published in Jewish in the Jewish Chronicle on May 14, 1897. So here you go. The people who pray for the return to Jerusalem, who hope that Israel may again become a nation who are enthusiastic about the city of our forefathers would do well to spend a short time in the city. Jerusalem, um, through the medium of a first impression, is a city hopelessly sad and sadly hopeless. And though there's a perceptible quiver of new life in the younger generation, it is as yet too faint to justify an anticipation of the return of ancient glories." End of quote. Another British uh, Jewish writer, more known Israel Sangwill, echoed some of these sentiments when he described Jerusalem as, and I quote, a ruined country in which one rode for hours amid rocks and stones then made him feel himself in the presence of the rib of Mother Earth." End of quote. However, for sang there was a silver lining in the whole Palestine experience. Unlike ben Susan, sang was drawn to some of the Jewish inhabitants that he met, which he described as, and I quote, "...fascinating types of both kind of dreamers, those who dream with their eyes shut, and those who dream with their eyes open." Um, Though Sangwill's encounter with these people, through Sangwill's encounter with these people, he engaged with rather than rejecting part of his own Jewish self. It gave him food for thought, though it did not sign him up unequivocally for the Zionist cause. For Frankel and Bendwitz, however, two Jews who shared an Orthodox background and both worked in the liberal professions, the experience of Palestine became key to their future commitment to Zionism. Unlike many of the other pilgrims, what Frankel and Bendwich saw and perceived during their stay in Palestine added further layers to the Jewish community or commonality, their solidarity and the homeliness that they experienced on the journey so far. Um, Frankel expressed this in organic, sedentary, nationalist terms when he wrote home, and I quote. Even though we have not yet seen milk and honey flow, I don't believe that I've ever seen such a fertile country, nor have been in such a lovely climate. You feel that you belong here, and I can almost compare us with flowers that have been standing in a pot, but now are planted where they're taken from. The comparison is not mine, but it's pretty and it's true." End of quote. Bendridge wrote in Jewish Chronicle on June 4th, 1897, that, and I quote, um, the pilgrims found the land, a garden, the path for days edged by a very garland of flowers. It was indeed a country which might be said to flow with milk and honey, and the scenery through which they passed had every variety of charm in it, from the imposing grandeur of the Alps to the softness and diversity of our English lakes. Jerusalem, the much maligned, was still a beautiful city." End of quote. So, while Frankel expressed an identification of true and authentic Jewish roots in the country, a nativist kind of belonging. Bendwich rather depicted how you could see European European topography in Palestine, right? Palestine was thus aligned with the Western Jewish values through association between these two places. So these were rather different interpretation of the relationship between Palestine and the Western Jewish pilgrimage, though both of these reasserted some aspect of the Herzl's scheme. So returning to the question of Zionist emergence, I'll begin by noting that the various experience, feelings and opinions that the pilgrims developed about Palestine and subsequently about Zionism was, ne- was not there prior to the trip. This might seem very banal and as a self-evident um, point, but it relates to a key matter in the study of Zionist emergence and its later consolidation into different camps and oppositional movements. The words and thoughts of Herzl and any of the other early Zionist thinkers were not in themselves enough for these Jews to develop any deep or life changing commitments to Zionism. Rather, it became the travel itself both to and in Palestine that made a string of differences appear relevant and important for the pilgrims to relate to and make sense of. Their individual and collective Jewishness changed form and meaning during the trip, as these differences were felt, expressed and reflected upon. However, as long as the trip was on and the group remained together, the participants seemed to stay in a friendly mood. Their sense of togetherness overrode their different experience interpretations of Palestine. So as the final horseback ride from Ju- Jerusalem to Damascus, which lasted several days, it also foregrounded physical grit rather than ideological differences. Right? So as if they followed Victor Turner's symbolic model of pilgrimage, the sense of communitas lasted, in other words, until the pilgrims left the group and returned home to their different Jewish communities and countries it is from this point the return from palestine and the jewish pilgrimage and to their jewish uh, communities it is from this point that we can begin to identify the crystallization of different um, collective agreements and disagreement related to palestine and western jewry we can begin to identify not just divisions of perspective but organized marked differences that would that would eventually be further organized into recognizable Zionist, territorial and non zionist stance. So I'll show now in my final part. So let's return to Frankel and the Danish Jews. For as is known in in Scandinavian Jewish history, um, following the trip to Palestine, Frankel actually became the dominant figure within the region to promote and organize Zionism in both formal and informal ways. In 1903, he established and chaired the Danish Zionist Association, and ten years later, he was a key force behind the creation of the Scandinavian Zionist Association. However, in this uh, historiography, these attempts have generally been described as futile, and Frankel himself as a one-man powerhouse that made a lot of things happen, but never really managed to create any change or nor succeed in turning 20th-century Scandinavian Jews into Aliyah-oriented. Zionist. The question always comes up, how many Jews ended up immigrating? So he's seen as some kind of a failure. In this perspective, Frankl's travel and his many experience along the way died out in his return to Denmark. Zionism was this idea that he presented to the Danish Jews, they rejected it. End of story. So, um, however, if we refrain from seeing Zionism, Zionist emergence as something that consisted of fixed entities that could either be accepted or received and instead look for cultural processes where meaning-making and cultural codes were practiced, experienced, negotiated, and men- made sense of, we can actually see that both the travel and Zionism came to play significant roles in Danish-Jewish meaning-making in the following decades. So, just as um, Bendwich, early on, had realized that the Maccabean Jews did not want overt political symbols connected with the travel to Palestine, Frankel used the next decade testing, developing, adjusting, and reasserting how different versions of Jewish national collectivity related to Palestine, how that sat with the Danish Jews. While well, Frankel became a paying and dedicated member of the Zionist organization and publicly identified with Herzl's political vision of Jewish homeland, of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, and Frankel wanted it to be in Palestine. Um, Uh, He also realized that he needed to engage and reshuffle some of the core values within the Danish Jewish community for them to follow his lead. The distance from formal Zionist commitment um, to communal Danish Jewish affairs and engagement was simply too far for Frankel simply to present Zionism as the truth. Frankel not only realized this um, incongruence, but he also found the task of renegotiating these cultural codes absolutely central for the future of Danish Jewry. And he took this task upon him. So, um, and here we can go to the last slide. Um, these are pictures of some of his activities, and I won't have time to go over all these activities um, that Frankel initiated in his effort to try to change Danish Jew- Jewish community without foregrounding any explicit Zionist agenda. But I will give you an example of one of his most popular ways. That is the Illustrated Lectures. His most popular lecture was titled, and here comes the big surprise, A Palestine Journey, and was held for the first time in early uh, early 1898, and it was repeated over and over again over the next 10 years and also revised, attracting each time hundreds of people. It was organized not as a Zionist event, though sometimes it was also a Zionist event, but most of the time it was not a Zionist event, but an event for the Jewish and non-Jewish cultural public of Copenhagen. Frenkel invited the audience to join him on a trip to Palestine. And here I quote, Ladies and gentlemen, he opened the lecture, we are going on a pretty long journey and are going to see quite a lot in a very short time. The largest Mediterranean steamer shall bring us to Palestine End of quote with more than a hundred pictures of Palestine accompanying him, which he had received from his Zionist contacts in Berlin. He took the Jewish and non-Jewish audience through a highly selected tour of what he evoked as a Jewish Palestine. An example of this can be seen in his evocation of Jerusalem. Here I quote, Finally, we are in Jerusalem. What unique sound has the word Jerusalem? We have heard about it from childhood. There has always hovered something mystic about it, something eternally distant in time and space. And now here we are. To describe the impression one gets, the first time one puts his foot down on the ground here is impossible. It has to be felt. One is both happy and overawed at the same time." End of quote. So the lecture was one long evocation of a Palestine that was contemporary, alive, accessible, Western, and yet distinctively Jewish. At no point did Frankel mention Zionism. Instead, he placed people, the audience, in this performative place where they were there with their senses and could experience what it was like to travel and be a part of a Jewish homeland in the making. Rather than try to convince Copenhagen Jews to sign up for the movement, he tried to change their immediate feeling and perception of contemporary Palestine and Jewish belonging. So in this process, Frankel needed over and over again, some of the core values of Danish Jewry that, among other things, defined the Danish Jews through privatized religious belonging and Danish territorial nationality. To continuously place a modern Jewish Palestine in the middle of the Danish Jewish public was in fact a major accomplishment that gradually gave way to a more expansive, expansive understanding of Danish Jewish belonging. While the vast majority of Danish Jewish pra- Jews prior to World War II never identified as Zionist, many in practice began to enact um, a Jewishness that allowed for an ethnic identification with Jewish others both inside and outside the Danish borders. So Palestine, Jewish immigrants, Jewish politics and Jewish world affair gradually ceased to be seen as something antithetical to Danish Jewishness. Instead, it became the realm of what Danish Jews could and sometimes even did relate to, join, discuss and sometimes appropriate. So just to round up now, did the travel to Palestine in 1897 really cause all this? Can Frankl alone accurately be attributed as the central force behind these changes? No. From the cultural sociological perspective that I unfolded during this lecture, process and meaning making rather than individual events or persons should be seen as central. As I've outlined over the last 40 minutes, many processes um, intersected for Frankl uh, to change his perspective and for him to manage to translate some of these experiences to a Danish Jewish audience. However, in the context of enriching our understanding of Zionist emergence, we need to construct more empirically thick descriptions like the one that I presented you with, that represent the thrust of meaning-making that was happening for Zionism to evolve, create change, and get Jews mobilized both for and against its main ideas. Thank you.) <laughs>
0: So yes, so yes. So I think I read somewhere that you're you're still on mute has been like the most quoted um, sentence of 2020. Anyway, So, and I'm happy to embody that and, and kind of own it. Uh, Maya, thank you so much for a really really interesting and quite new actually, um, of, you know, kind of take on all of this stuff. I have a fair few questions. I'm not sure how erudite some of them are. I think I was going to start off. If you don't mind, I'll take the advantage of, of of taking the first question. Or maybe I should go to the chat just to see. So our questions already published. Okay, so I, I can't see anything. Um, hold on, I just hope this is, doesn't take my screen off and uh, it does take my screen off. Okay, right, um, okay, so I don't know, I've got it, hold on, I've got, anyway, all um, right, um, so my, so I, I can't, uh, I can't get, I can't see any of the questions, Jakob, oh yes, I see it, how do it. anyway? Sorry, but so Maya. I um, mean, you talk about the, the, the idea of the process, which I, I totally agree with you. That, that we we speak so much of kind of, you know, the teleological idea of Zionism. Of course, the telos changed over time, and we. I'm think. I'm not even sure we defined the telos at the beginning. You know, or that you know the, the kind of the as you say the proto-Zionists or the early Zionists defined this telos. I had a few few kind of com, uh, kind of. Things that I noticed as you were talking. First of all, 1897 is not really the beginning of Zionist immigration. It's the beginning of perhaps Herzelian Zionist immigration, right? So, so but you, we were talking. It takes place already 17 years into what we might call the first Aliyah. I think that's just something I just would notice, and maybe you could comment about that. But I guess going back to Dan- Denmark, which is something we hear almost nothing about, which is why I was so interested in having you speak for us. Um, you know, there's this, I, I suppose the one thing we didn't talk about too much and I wanted maybe if you, if you could comment upon this, is uh, so much of what informed Zionism or the, or the embrace of Zionism or the rejection of Zionism had something to do with the tension in each per, in each particular European country between assimilation and anti-Semitism, I would say, and I just wondered if you could comment about uh, about that in the Danish context, please, if that's not too crazy a question. <laughs>
1: um. So, I mean, that has been when I started studying Zionism in, in, um, in Scandinavia, there was this obvious, I mean, I'm saying obvious. There was this very accepted framework of how we understand the development of the Scandinavian or the specific Danish uh, community development. And there was this obvious that the Danes during the 19th century became more assimilated immigrants Jewish immigrants came uh, end of 19th century and that created they they brought Zionism so to say and there was this cra- there was this conflict and their similar story kind of approach dominated okay and so even though Frankel and his activities was noticed there was like assimilation the the the, the desire for assimilation was just too heavy or too. And so we we don't, that's kind of what we don't see all the this negotiation and meaning making that are actually taking place. What I mean, I almost stopped using the term assimilation because it just becomes this uh, cloud where we don't see all the movement actually happening. Okay. And this is really where I want to integrate cultural and um, political studies, because there are a lot of the, the self understanding are changing. The fact that people are meeting in different ways. How the established Danish Jewish community had to meet the, the immigrants. That first, I mean, the the established Jewish community really wanted just to get the immigrants moving on. Like they all that they um, they um, they they funded a lot of money, which simply was used as train tickets or uh, boats tickets to, I mean, to London or to further on. And the immigrants were like, thank you. We really didn't want to come to Copenhagen. We want to go to London or to the US. So everyone was kind of happy. But Frankel, Frankel, he was like, no, 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 this is a potential. This is, we can widen the Jewish community. He actually engaged with the immigrants, but he taught them Danish. He also sometimes signed them up for Zionist courses. He called the Danish class a Zionist class. Like there was a lot of things going on at the same time where the term assimilation really doesn't cover all the many um, the many processes that were happening. Where where my my argument is things changed. Like how Jews saw themselves, even though they didn't sign up um, for for Zionism, uh, things were changing. So I found the 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 this assimilatory kind of approach a little bit um, unhelpful.
0: Okay. Um, so we have a question from Marcus, which I've now been able to access. Uh, sorry, Marcus says, fantastic presentation and story. Many thanks. When will your book be published? Uh, so, so I guess um, uh, not. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so can you give us any additional information about meetings or encounters of any between the pilgrims and the leaders of the Jewish communities that they encountered in Palestine, who I assume were mostly Sephardim?
1: Oh, no, I mean, they met with the, I mean, they, as you were saying, like, Scientists had, I mean, people had already, a uh, scientist-oriented people, and like people had already come there. So when they landed in Yafo, um, uh, Heinrich Liu from Germany was already there. He welcomed them. Um, um, ben Yehuda. They met with Ben Yehuda. They also met with the Sephardic, but they met with also all the people, the younger people, the colonists. They called them. Um, they also called them the Jewish cowboys. <laughs> uh, in um, and where did where did they go? They went to, of course, the the Alliance, um, the agricultural uh, school, and they met and they went to some of the colonies around. So they did definitely meet uh, in, like they had many meetings a day with, with the Jewish um, the Yeshu that was there.
0: Right, so the Jewish Cowboys is quite funny. They could missed a whole cinema cine, cinematographer. Uh, that, was
1: Frankl, that was from a Frankel letter. He saw
0: right? this so he... We missed the whole cinema genre. We could have had instead of the spaghetti western, we could have had the Kneidlach western or something like that. Um, so, so Mark Sullivan. Oh, so Jakob, you're going to say something. What about the book? Uh, yes, about the book. Sorry, Mark ah, asked ah, about
1: the it's, book. It's, I, it's in the making. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do, I do, I do.
0: It's yeah, it is in the making. Okay. Uh, so, so, Mark Sullivan asks, uh, very interesting to see how Frankel developed his approach um, just before Herzl's uh, eight, 1897 conference. I'm going to move my mouse down, but quickly became a follower of Herzl and advocate of Herzl's ideas, as I understand the dates in this lecture. Um, I guess that's not, that's just a comment. I Do you want to? comment further on that Maya.
1: my I mean I think that's why I fell in love with this I mean this was not to be this is my from my PhD studies and I wasn't supposed I was supposed to do like a 50-year Danish <laughs> scientist development and then I just found you know I started finding letters and finding this pilgrimage and I mean as a historian who really as an anthropological historical a, 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 a historian inspired by anthropology understanding this timeliness understanding the time before 1890 like You know, I have always started my scientist historiography with uh, August. What is it? 30 or 29, you know, 1897. So I found it extremely interesting to see the time before and to understand what was crystallized. I mean, what positions were already there? What was in the making? How? I mean, that's really what I'm interested in. How does how do one develop your political uh, positions? Right. Um, So, I mean, it's I'm definitely, you know, find it fascinating exactly that it's half a year before war some, you know, what is the canonized uh, dates of 1897.
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I would almost argue that 1897 kind of Zionism becomes Western. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have the kind of the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the beginning of Zionist immigration in 1880, which is very much Eastern. But I, I wanted to ask, I wanted to kind of ask something else that I I was struck by. So you, you mentioned, you quote Herzl, writing in the Jewish Chronicle, um, oops, uh, um, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but I think it's not even that important. I think it's quite interesting to note that, you know, the, the, in, in just before the first Zionist Congress, when Herzl had written, kind of, you know, um, the Judenstadt, which is in, to a certain degree very much informed by his situation in Habsburg, as a Habsburg Jew, um, and he, you know, the first the first conference would take place in Basel, which I suppose is was a, it, it, I think it was originally supposed to be Munich, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, or, or but. He appeals to an English audience when he's talking about about the um uh, about um uh, what do you call it the the pilgrimage. It's quite interesting to me, and I'm wondering. I mean, it it's I suppose if we're going to talk about meaning making, I and mean, this appeal to England is very interesting to me, obviously, because it has very much it takes it it becomes very much very important later on. But um, I I just wanted to maybe. It just struck me that that's that's rather interesting. So I wonder if you could comment or maybe suggest reasons, um, you know, for health's appeal to an English audience and the Jewish Chronicle. (laughs)
1: Um, So, I mean, there are several questions. So it's Nordau who's like, who's, um, I mean, this is quite a few years back where I was sitting with these papers. I have to, if I'm mistaking some of the chronology, please excuse me. But as I remember, it is um, Nordau who suggested he goes meet to meet uh, Israël Um, I mean, first, it's not like Hertel is on one horse. He's trying you know, his luck several yeah. places. So I think, you know, as I remember, he was rejected in Paris. I mean, the French Jews were not interested in him. So he goes there and why, I mean, England, it's the colony, I mean, it's the empire. I mean, yeah. that is where he sees the potential. And what I find so fascinating and why I kind of just um, described a little bit the Maccabean club, like these intellectual British Jews, like they just insisted, insisted, insisted on being, on describing themselves as non-political. Like the very, you know, I, when I, I think I, there, the the arch, the archive of the Maccabean is in um, Southampton, at the Southampton uh, Library. Uh, I went there and just to read, to read up on what, and they just to form the club was kind of like, you know, to be Jews in a group was, almost controversial for them because they did not want to be identified in like any collective Jewish sense, or they were very like careful about that. So I, I, I'm just so struck about Herzl coming there and having these ideas, what he can use these British Jews for, and the British doing be, they were just so far away from that sense. They did not want, it wasn't that they didn't want to be part of that project, they didn't even want to, be defined in political terms so that's really where we see like how far some of these positions were from each other and of course people changed, like bandwidth change and some out of very pragmatic reasons and some out of commitments right but it was really um within a few years we see a lot of change happening and yeah but i was also very and in my in my, I'm saying book because it's not, in, it. in my book, I am spending much more time on the English context because it is relevant to understand both Her- Herzl's idea of why this group and also how it formed the idea of the pilgrimage.
0: Okay. Um, I, I have another question if nobody else has a few questions. questions so I don't want to published. drive you nuts with my questions, Maya, but um, I suppose, um, I, I, could you just give a little bit more context uh, as, as to the decision to, to include Frankel on the tour? I mean, wh- wh- which, which way did it come from? Uh, you know, I, I might have missed this, by the way, but I don't think yeah, I did. No.
1: So I never found the first initial invitation. As I understand, um, Bendridge, after realising that, I think there was three Maccabeans signing up, Israel tsang was one of them, he, um, he wrote he wrote out to Jewish communities around the world. I mean, there was people from, there was a, some Americans, there was uh, Italian, there was Klangl. So he simply just like, I need a community. I need, <laughs> I need, I need participants. Um, yeah, so he, I mean, and it was upper middle class um, Jews who were, as I was saying, I mean, it's interesting to think who wanted to go on this tour. Of course, you had to have the economical means. You had to have the ability to like, you know, it was, in a in a context of today, like I think he sent it out in December and the trip was going to be in April to take two months off. That's like a limited amount of people who could do that. And um, yeah, but also understanding something about like the group of Jews at this point, who was interested in both understanding Palestine or like identifying understanding and exploring Palestine. Something about this mix of wanting to be part of this openness, uh, exploring not just Palestine, Europe, right? Uh, And also being part of a Jewish tour. And that was, I don't think it was that big a group who actually uh, fit that bill. But I haven't done the full, I think I've seen six travel diaries. And I mean, so I still have like, (laughs) I'm still waking up at the middle of night and thinking, there's still 15 more to go, but
0: I have quite a lot of material. I, I think it'd be interesting to find out. I don't actually know myself, but it'd be interesting to find out if this was kind of the first non-Christian Victorian kind of expedition. And we, you said they, they didn't want to call it an expedition. I think that's that's very notable, actually. But that, yeah. you know, there were there were a couple before that just before. And I can't, I, you know, I should have should have looked this up before. I can't remember the name of the group that, that, that undertook it. There's both an American and a British kind of Palestine exploration. Um, for, so, Jakob, you've got- um, uh, There are, There's a,
2: another question for Mark, if you can. Take
0: uh, it. So, I don't, oh, sorry, I, it's, I I don't have, Um. sorry about that, guys. Um. I just didn't have to scroll down. So, can I ask Maya to say how Louis Frankel and his supporters in Denmark responded to the Balfour Declaration of 2nd November in 1917, was his activity after 1917 in Denmark and other Scandinavian countries. Um, Danish Jews seem to have followed the much larger British Jewish community in its approach. So referred to Bencheret, senior father of Norman, obviously, and Weizmann um, was the key figure after 1917. Uh, um, and so Mark, so I'm just going <laughs> to put the two together. Mark notes also that Denmark was a neutral country in 1914 uh, in the First World War and kept links with Britain throughout World War One.
1: Yeah. So I think there's a few questions in there. I mean, first of all, so the scientist headquarters during World War One were in Copenhagen, right? So you had to sign it so uh, there was quite a lot of activities actually in those years um Frenkel, I, I'm, I, I mean he's connected with he's actually put up. he's i i mean as a doctor he starts working more he's traveling around in first world war trying to figure out what he can as a medical um professional do but um the the balfour decoration and the jewish community was actually quite like embraced so i'm saying jewish community it was dominated not dominated, but there was a big uh, group of Jewish immigrants and the Zionist headquarters and so on. So um, there was the descriptions I read was that there was kind of, you know, flags and so on. So the um, so that was the first question. The second question was that how it developed after World War, or like in the interwar years. Or?
0: Declaration. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was this activity after 1917 in Denmark and other Scandinavian countries?
1: Um. So that really becomes a much i mean i i haven't fully mapped that uh, i mean i haven't mapped the interwar years because there's many different uh, kind of narratives going on one is you know just building on the first thing like you know Zionism was rejected it was such a assimilatory country and um only when with um, the with the refugees started coming um later on like the jewish community started taking care but that's I'm not convinced by that narrative because I see many of the Yiddish uh, speaking, I mean, the East European Jews who ended up settling in Copenhagen. They created like a subculture, or I wouldn't say subculture, a parallel where there was theater, there was many more journals, there was a cultural life there, and um, where some, I mean, at some point. 1970, I I think it's 1916, 17. Um, Copenhagen was one of the biggest uh, centers of Yiddish theater before it moved to uh, Shalom Alechem was there before he moved to New York. So there was these small, you know, there was a lot happening in the interwar period, which I don't think has been properly like, you know, it hasn't been properly mapped out because we keep on focusing on the established, like the Danish Jewish institution didn't change almost. There was very little change. The official policies wasn't that different. But what you do see is sports club coming, Zionist sports club coming, small, like there was the football club and there was other things where you see that it doesn't seem like a, you know, major change because, you know, as I, and I keep on repeating, it's just seen as culture, Mm. but it changes completely the identification of the difference between a Jewish middle fat kid actually playing soccer with others. That is not, uh, you know, that is, has something to do with his self understanding um, as a Jew, where it's okay to, to, not okay, but it's part of his kind of habitus to actually sign up to social groups. So this was a long answer to say, more research needed.
0: (laughs) So, So Jakob's got his hand up, sorry. Oh, yeah. Another question, yeah. So, sorry, just to remember to scroll down. This is sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's just I, a. It's a oh, Marja said yes. Okay, <laughs> that's good. So, I suppose uh, I just have what maybe one comment that it might there probably be a final comment now that uh, unless somebody I a else. Another question. Has. Oh, Jakob, go please.
2: Thank you, uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, thank you, Maya, for this uh, really thought-provoking. There's so many different strands that go into and outside of your uh, talk that. I'm sure a book would be the, the necessary uh, volume yeah. for considering this. And I'm tempted to speculate on so many different things, for example, and this is not a question. It's just a, it's interesting to think about this uh, first of all, this um, Western European orientalist discussed from Palestine, of this uh, uh, dreamers. It sounds very much like uh, Herzl's own uh, impressions of uh, Jerusalem when he arrived to Jerusalem. Just he couldn't get to get, he couldn't wait to get out of it. Where he was following mm-hmm. uh, the real pilgrimage of the of the Kaiser, um, and it's also interesting to note the uh, uh, how bourgeois the whole experience is. You you noted yeah. that right? It's not just taking yeah. all the money and 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 uh, uh, and the luxuries that are promised by Thomas Cook who is still selling uh, uh travelling packages today uh, but uh, but also the whole experience of visiting in order to return and to mm. compare this to two other kinds of visitations of palestine of the time there are obviously well maybe not exactly the same point but in 10, 10 years time 20 years times the east europeans would start coming allegedly to stay most of them not but those of them who stayed came to do something completely different and not only class-wise, but ideologically speaking, actually taking over the, the Zionist project. So to think about a, a speculation of what would have happened to the Zionist project, were it not those East Europeans who took who who's taken over the project, but these bourgeois Western uh, uh, travelers who are looking for some excitement and some, um, and also obviously to compare this to. Uh, um, uh, Middle Eastern Jews who have been coming and going regularly as part of their own, you know, traveling Mm. in their own uh, spaces. Mm. But that's just a comment and it's a question. I know I have two questions, if you allow me. And I think we might exhaust our time together. Uh, First is an obvious question that I'm sure many people are asking in the back of their mind. So have they met Palestinians? Have they met Arabs in uh, I mean, because you mentioned they met some of the cowboys and some of the uh, colonizers. But did anyone stop to think about the inhabitants of the land? And second, uh, more specifically about uh, Frankel, I find it interesting that a he invites the rabbi, b he invites him while writing about circumcision, c and I have really I've read anything, nothing. I mean, you- you're introducing him to me first time, so I don't know if I'm completely missing the po- the picture. But also, when he writes this diary, he's complaining about the assimilated or non-observant Jews that they would run, mm-hmm. you know, so it's clear that for him this, uh, this fascination with the land has to do with an, an, a certain more traditional understanding of, uh, of Jewishness. How did he feel with the secular dominance uh, of at least the, the Eastern European uh, Zionists?
1: So I mean, uh, oh, there's (laughs) how are we on the time? (laughs) Um, So let me just begin with the inhabitants of the land. As you said, the Palestinians. I mean, this is when you read at least all the most of the travel diaries that I read, they describe the Jews, some of the Jews that they meet as inhabitants of the land as well. Like so they don't. But of course, they distinguish Arabs. And then they uh, do they call them either just Jews or Palestinian Jews or something like that. So there's the, you know, the, they recognize or not recognize, they see these people, even like uh, a man like, um, Heinrich Lauf, who's been there for like four years, you know, he's already a part of the, um, um, Professor uh, Michael Berkovich from UCL, UCL has written in actually one of it, some of his early work exactly this description. I mean, he has seen many of the different descriptions of some of the Jewish travelers uh, before World War I, who's, there's this group of, of, of travel Jewish travelers who really distinguish, especially like I think he analyzes like the arrival to Yafo. So there's the Yafo, there's the Orientalist where that is seen as an Arab and then comes the colonies. And then there's the whole description. I think it's, I mean, I think really also it's the Zionist canonical work where we make sure that there is this distinguish between the Jewish Palestine and the Arab Palestine, right? Um, And that becomes very important to see um, the the filth and the chaos versus the orderly road into the orderly road into, uh, into the the for instance the 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 colonies right it's being described as order and productive the jews are productive so that becomes one line um, and this is where it's interesting to see that these pilgrims have not yet been schooled right they have not yet been schooled into seeing like no no you shouldn't see yafo as um, a picture of the all of all of palestine you should distinguish it So just to say that there's, um, I've been very inspired by uh, Professor Berkovich's work. um, And uh, what did I wanted to say? So and what was, Frankel and the secular? Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, he was brought up in this. I mean, this was not a surprise for him. The Jewish community in Copenhagen wasn't that big. He was actually the exception, Um, and so he was used to. Um, the more Scandinavian secular form, the East European Zionism of a secular, I think that's, I mean, that, I, I don't, I mean, I know there's been written a lot about the, the fights, but I'm actually also, like, both Benbridge and and uh, Frankel and, um, and Löwe and Hermann Strug, who was also often, they were writing together, they all were, all of them identified quite uh, with Orthodox Judaism and ended up... Um, um, establishing their own, um, si- the Mizrahi Zionist organization, which I try to reach their archive in Jerusalem, but it has, it's kind of quite chaotic. Um, so I haven't fully gone down that path yet, but there is something um, that, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm giving you very a uh, half answer there. Um, but I, I mean, what is so fascinating with, with the letters and all of them? Frankel at least keeps on seeing that he is not—he's he's, he's experienced in Palestine and also on a travel that the distinctions at home between the religious and secular it's different in It's different now because we are we are all Jews, right? There are some things in the process that makes the, the religious secular divide less important. Okay, he's seeing somehow a elevated Jewish collectivity, which of course, you know, Herzl would be happy exactly to, you know, that is part of the, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: Peter, we have more qu- uh, one
0: more question. Okay, um, I <laughs> that's okay, um, I'll get that in. i just got um. So anonymous says Herzl famously wrote that it was only by colonizing Palestine the Jews could be- could become fully European. To what extent did those figures recognize themselves as colonizers? You mentioned just now that there was a reference to them as uh, colonists and obviously there was a Jewish colon- colonization fund. How did the discourse of colonialism figure into this group's communications and was there any connection to Dutch colonialism?
1: So no no connection to Dutch colonialism, but they were definitely like, you know, that was the discussion. I mean, if we take it completely out of a contemporary but and uh, instead Bring, go back to the nineteenth century. Had to like, yes, we want to be colonial. Like that would be a dream if we could like colonize. That means we would have power. That means the British would kind of have our back. That means where um, uh, Bentwich was like, not out of uh, you know, obviously not out of um, what do you call it? Like that he didn't you know he would love the, to have the power as the British. Uh, colonialist, but he didn't want uh, the British Jews to be seen as kind of an independent unity, right? That was the fear. So he was more like fully identifying with the English colonial project. Of course, he just didn't want these British Jews to be seen as some kind of independent. And that's why we, they went away from the language of exploration or expedition and all these are colonial ways of like let's go out see this territory i mean the whole idea was a colonial idea right let's go and see the territory and see if we can build something i mean that was the hurdle but that's where we see Bendwich saying like uh no i think if we start doing that We start being uh, associated with like that. We want to distinguish ourselves from the English, from the British. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to at this point be seen as, you know, having a political agenda of its own. So at this point, it was definitely seen as a, you know, a wonderful thing to be, you know, part of the British Empire and British colonialism at this point was completely accepted also by most of these Jews, the upper middle class Jews, you know, it was Britain was part of the dream and the British Empire definitely. So, yeah.
0: So that's right. I mean, so you talked about you know the whole idea of process, which is which is a very good case in point. Um, Maya uh, Gildan, uh, th- 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 thank Zuckerman. Thank you so much. I don't know I've the need to say all of your names. Um, anyway, thank you so much for, for, for really really new, really interesting, really informative. Um, I would just remind everybody else that next week we pick up again with the Israel Studies seminar. And two weeks, we'll do the final uh, Reconsidering Early Jewish Nationalist Ideology Seminar. It will be Alana Shapira from um, the the, um, the University for Angewandte Kunst, I can't remember how you say Applied Arts, there you go, in Vienna, um, who will be speaking on Berta Zuckerkandl um, and Viennese Nationalism and Modernism. So uh, thank you very, very much, Mai.
1: Thank you.